This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. I just want to give a quick thanks to Euro Classics for sponsoring this episode. Euro Classics is all about collector cars, from servicing your new BMW M5 to prepping your Porsche for the racetrack to executing a total restoration on your favorite classic. They do it all from routine maintenance to performance upgrades to appraisals and everything in between. You can learn more about its owner, Dale Oaks, by listening to episode number 65 of this podcast. And you can find Euro Classics in the Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana service area and online at euroclassics.com. Classics, C-L-A-S-S-I-X dot com. All right. Next on our list for the Mega Monterey Collector Car Podcast episode is Tom Van Ness. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And if you're online watching us on YouTube and seeing the video, you can see that you are from Farland Restoration. Could you tell us a little bit about your shop and where you're located and what you do? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We are um, in Englewood, Colorado, which is just outside of Denver just a suburb. Um, it's a shop that's been around since 1991. So we're celebrating our 30th year. We are a complete restoration shop that specializes in European imports in the kind of 60s, 70s, 80s realm. We also do a lot of, of, of other things kind of in a, we have a local audience and a national audience. Locally, we'll do uh, more kind of traditional classic car stuff, but nationally and internationally, we do complete restorations uh, on cars along the lines of 300 SL Mercedes. We've done a, a significant batch of Ferrari 250 GT PF Cabriolets, kind of 60-61 era. Wow. Um, and done some other very interesting cars along the lines of, uh, we did a 73 Maserati Ghibli SS uh, that did one of the manufacturer's award at Amelia a few years back. Um, and also, we do, we do a lot of, uh, of kind of more modern Ferrari in the uh, in restoration shop. Our general sales manager, Bill Orth, is actually a Ferrari concourse judge. And so that gives us a, a, a leg up on finding great cars and, and getting people getting people into the right cars. So. Yeah, no, that's great. And one reason I wanted to have you on here is that you do restorations that would qualify for Pebble Beach at Monterey. So I like just a little snippet, you know, your thoughts on... You know, you have your guy that brings in a Porsche 912 that he wants it as a daily driver, which is one kind of restoration. Then yep. you might have the local Concorde kind of restoration, but then you have the Pebble Beach type of restoration, which is definitely has to be the best of the best. And then after that, if you would, I do want to touch on one of the cars that is coming up for sale at RM Sotheby's Monterey auction. So if you would kind of give us an insight when you get the goal of we want to compete at Pebble Beach, 
what does that look like inside the shop, kind of behind the scenes? Um, that's a great question. And actually, if you if you look at uh, let's see, row number three, oop, go yep. down again. Uh, row four, car number three, the Arnold Bristol. Click on that guy, right, red one. Yeah. So that car was uh, a car that we that we got in, and it got into Pebble Beach, and we realized that we had about three months to get it ready for the show. So that was kind of June. Wow. And all of a sudden, we had a hundred days to get to Pebble. The car had had a lot of work done to it in our shop already, but it ended up being a very significant fast track, and uh, got it there. And, and so that is a, uh, an Arnold Bristol is a really interesting, it's one of those early kind of English power plant and Italian body um, hybrids that were popular in the late 50s. And we got it in, or a customer brought it into us, and you can see that it obviously had been raced a bit, uh, had been damaged, and there's something like 75 of these in the world. And so we had to get in there and do a complete restoration on a, and a to your point of a concourse restoration, on a car that it was very, very hard to find parts for, very hard to find what went where, especially especially after the front end had been crashed, that kind of thing. And so uh, and that's where we ended up with. And so, yeah, it comes becomes a kind of all hands on deck for the guys in the shop. You know, we've got these just absolute master craftsmen in metal and the guys that can, can uh, tear down and rebuild these insane, uh, you know, 12-cylinder Ferrari engines and our trimmers and assembly guys. And so just getting, uh, getting everyone together to really understand, you know, the, the, the level and the significance of where these cars are going. Yeah. And it's funny because this particular car for the listeners that are on podcast audio only, it is pretty crazy because the pictures show that it was kind of raced. I mean, you've got paint chips coming off where you can see the bare metal underneath. You've got you know, uh, gauges that are cloudy or yellowing, you've got missing trim pieces, you've got the wrong type of interior, you've got a factory, a, a non-factory roll bar that you've got to make corrections for. Every yeah. single part of this car was touched to bring it back to life, uh, back to the factory specs. So that is a huge undertaking for anyone, much less to get it completed to that high of a level in just three months. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and the, you know it was kind of finished in three months. I don't want to. I don't want to think. Right. That, right. People to think that we can do, be like the TV shows, right? That oh, bring your car and it'll be done next week. Yeah. Um, yep. But uh, yeah, it was, and so um, yeah, that, that that was a that was a fun challenge and came through very well on that one. And then we ended up. In the process, we ended up acquiring another one or two of those Arnold Bristols, one for parts, and then we had a couple other gentlemen that that saw what we were up to, and brought their cars in. So that's that's kind of a fun side benefit, right? Is to is becoming a, an expert on these extremely rare cars, right? And when someone sees it done to a high level, the correct way, once you know, yeah. they want to they want to go with the person that knows how to do it and has shown the results and has done that exact car. So I'm sure you learned a ton. We did. We did. And there's some kind of fun stuff like that seat you're looking at right there is kind of a really interesting sort of elephant hide style leather. And after we took the car apart, you can see in those previous pictures that it was kind of a, you know, the racing seats were a black vinyl or black leather. And we found a little section of that sort of elephant hide um, looking leather that was tucked up underneath one of those door handles you can see right there in that photo. And so we kind of pulled the thing apart and found this tiny, tiny sample of the leather and then sent it out to the, to the uh, leather um, <laughs> shop and said, can you 
can you mimic this? And so ended up uh, with some kind of fun sleuth work to, to get the car hopefully back to closer to what it was originally. Sure. Yeah. That's just amazing. Like you said, it is a, it is detective work. You know, you've got to figure out what was the original, not only the fabric for the seats, but for the paint color. I mean, even I'm sure going to the gauges and the floorboards and, you know, the kind of trim and the carpet and, you know, all sorts of stuff. That's, so that's quite an investigative report that you have to do prior to, uh, to actually starting the work. Well, I do want to move on to the, I know we're a little, little tight for time in this mega episode, yep. but I do want to move on to the car that we do have at RM Sotheby's Monterey sale that you can talk a little bit more about. We will have you on again or someone from Farland to talk about the history of your restoration shop and dig into that a little bit more. So Absolutely. be sure to stay tuned. So I'm going to flip over to this really cool car here. So tell us about this 1967 Ferrari 330 GT 2 Plus 2 Series 2. And again, this is at our RM Sotheby's Monterey sale. Um, yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're excited to have this uh, go up in Monterey. Um, this car was has a very interesting story with us. Uh, I would love to say that we restored it and got it to that level, but we did not. <laughs> we, uh, we, we, we work with a lot of cars. We prep a lot of cars. Uh, this car was in, was in excellent shape, and we got, uh, our, got it ready for auction with our customer. But the thing about this car that is really fascinating for us is that Jack Farland, who owns the shop with his wife, Trina, his dad, Faux Farland, um, was a car dealer in Denver since way, way back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And he actually sold this car new at Farland Buell Chrysler slash Ferrari in, wow. uh, when it was wait, new. Wait, wait, say, say that again. Far, wait, say it again. <laughs> so it was, so, yeah, so it was Jack's, so Jack Farland owns a shop. His dad, Faux Farland, uh, was a car guy from way back. He owned Farland Buell Chrysler, which was a uh, car dealership in Denver from, I think, 60, 58 or 60 to uh, 90s. And so he was one of the early Ferrari dealers. And so actually sold this car new at his Ferrari shop in 66 or so. So probably when Jack was running around uh, on his uh, skateboard. <laughs> right. And you did say Chrysler Buell. Is that Buell the motorcycle? No, it's actually, um, if your uh, folks from Denver would recognize it, but it's Buell, uh, as in Temple Buell, who is our Den probably Denver's most famous architect. This was his son, Temple Buell Jr., who was Foe's partner. And Temple Buell, this is a whole other episode, but he was uh, an early race promoter. He was a larger-than-life guy, including his actual size, so he couldn't get, <laughs> actually get in the race cars, but he was a sponsor. And uh, Carol Shelby raced for him early, and Mass and Gregory, uh, the guy used to jump out of the cars and yeah. wow, okay, <laughs> interesting characters. But so that's an extremely long-winded way of saying this car was sold by Jack's dad originally in '66 here in Denver. So, well, that's really really cool, and it looks like uh, it's obviously been kept up well and is was restored well, like you said. Uh, yeah. What are some of the specs on this car? I'm flipping through some, through some pictures online right now. It's a beautiful silver with what looks like the original leather interior. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a 67 330 GT 2 plus 2 is the, the technical categorization of it. Um, and the car is really in exceptional condition. We believe that that uh, interior is original. Um, I'm not sure exactly what um, the provenance and documentation may or may not be on that. But just for looking at it, it really, really is uh, an impressive version of that car. And it was funny. We also had at the same time, we had a 
another 330 GT 2 plus 2 that was originally owned by Bill Orth, who's our general sales manager. He owned the car 40 years ago, and it was a red one that's also on our site. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy really cool. 330 thing going on at our shop. So Yeah, yeah. Folks really uh, dig those cars. So, no, that's really cool. And I, like I said, I'm flipping through some pictures here, and it looks to be in fantastic shape. Yeah. And is that a five-speed in there, I would assume? Uh, yes. Okay. Yep. Five speed car. Yeah. Have you had a chance to drive this particular car? I did not get a chance to drive that one. No. Okay. That's right. yeah. There's a, we, we have a, a fair amount of stuff that comes through and it, it, it's kind of funny because I, I buy and sell and then I f uh, photo and video for the restorations and the documentation of car sales and cars like this kind of come in sort of on the side, right? So it's a car that we didn't restore. So we don't want to go out and go, Oh, Hey, we restored it. Um, but it is going, getting ready for uh, a very significant auction. And so um, we tend to kind of work those through social media and say, we're always very, very clear saying, uh, we're doing the, the show prep on this car, um, but we did not restore it. So we wanna make sure that people are aware of that. Sure, sure, yep. And I love the presentation. You actually take some very nice photographs, <laughs> so. Well, I have to be honest with you on that one also. That, so <laughs> when, when, uh, when we're doing, I call them big cars, we actually call in a ringer who's a, a kid named Nathan Leach Proffer here in Denver who shoots for RM a lot of times, so. Okay, well, he, he yeah. did a fantastic job. I'm gonna assume you do a great <laughs> job as well. I gotta um, stop beating our shop up. Oh, we didn't restore it. Oh, I didn't shoot that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you, you've seen the, you know, my, my listeners, uh, they have seen the, the wonderful work you do based on uh, the website that I was flipping through earlier, so. Yeah, for sure. Just a wonderful car. It's got the tool belt here or the tool roll here with everything present, which is really cool. A lot of details. So I am looking forward to meeting you in person. Uh, obviously, you'll be there. I'll be there. We'll meet in person. And Absolutely. what's the best way for uh, my listeners to learn more about your restoration shop? Um, you can check us out for sure at Farland Cars, C-A-R-S, FarlandCars.com. We're also Farland Classic Restoration on Facebook, Instagram, um, YouTube info at Farland Cars and 720-588-8427 is our main number. So, so. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. Thanks for joining us today. This is, again, part of the Mega Monterey review episode. So we have a lot of spectacular cars coming to the auction. And our biggest one, the premier car of the auction is a Porsche 917. And to help talk about this car and Porsche 917s in general, uh, I'd love to welcome Jay Galati. Jay, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Well, I really appreciate you uh, reaching out um, and us connecting because you have written a tremendous, amazing, beautiful book about the Porsche 917 called, and I'll hold it up here for those watching online, The Golf 917. So absolutely incredible book. I, I did do an unwrapping or an unboxing uh, so if you're on YouTube, be sure to check that out because it is such an impressive book you've written. So I do want to get into 917s. I do want to get into the golf book. Uh, but first, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into cars in general. And then specifically, how you got into Porsche 917s? Okay, well, um, I was pretty much born into it. My, my father's a car guy uh, from way back, and he worked in a Volkswagen dealership from the time I was about two years old until I was about 20 years old. So 
Um, so I grew up around a Volkswagen dealership and of course, Porsche and Volkswagen have always had a very close relationship. So that kind of got me interested in cars and Porsche a little bit on that side. And then of course that Steve McQueen guy really started all the trouble when I was about eight or nine years old. Uh, the first time the Le Mans film was shown on television in the U S I remember watching it. And uh, that was pretty much the end um, or the beginning, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, just, just one quick comment for those watching on YouTube. If you look over my slightly bald head, there's the black plate from the bullet McQueen bullet Mustang. So uh, I'm a big McQueen fan as well. Uh, that's a big influence for uh, folks of a certain age. Yeah, those of us who grew up in the 70s, I mean, Steve McQueen was the guy. And I think, you know, his movies were on television a lot. So we saw him a lot. And um, although the Le Mans movie wasn't on very often, it was a real treat whenever, you know, it was on. But so between growing up in the dealership, uh, around the dealership and um, just getting interested in cars in general, plus that particular special movie, um, that's what really got me interested in the 917. And then when I got to be in high school, you know, I was, I really started following both sports car racing and formula one. And then I started trying to collect the information as I went along, uh, bought my copy of John Wire's book when I was a freshman in college, wow. uh, which was a good investment because those books are <clears throat> copies of that book are really, uh, really expensive now. Um, and really since then, I just tried to, uh, collect all the information I could, uh, about that period of sports car racing, Porsche in general, and specifically the 917s. Uh, and then of course, when we got into the internet age, then things got really interesting because we started to be able to collect information from people all around the world who are some who are experts, some maybe not experts, some just hobbyists um, and the spotters, people who spot the cars all around the world when they come out in public. Um, and so that's something that's kind of been going on for the past 20 years or so. Um, so when I went to write the book that, you know, I had a lot of information in my library and in my own archives, uh, you know, to start with. Right, right. Okay, well, that's really cool. Um, now, I have to ask, what was the first time you saw a 917 in person? Have you ever sat in one? What's your experience with the cars in person? <laughs> <laughs> well, amazingly, I never saw one in person until 1998 at the Monterey Historics. Um, so at that point, I'd been a fan of the 917s for a long, long time and uh, finally got to see a few of them uh, at Monterey uh, in 1998. For That was Porsche's 50th. Uh, at the historics in 98. Um, I have actually sat in one, one of the owners um, of a car in my book. I went to visit and he kind of made fun of me because he said, hey, you wrote this whole big book and you've never even sat in one of these cars. Uh, and I said, no, I hadn't been. So he let me sit in his, which was uh, quite a quite a nice experience. And um, not something the keys, I right? Then throw the keys go around the block. Right? No, no, no keys. We didn't start the engine or anything like that, but at least got to sit in it. And so I can say I've, uh, you know, I sat in it with the door closed because I'm, I'm, uh, not too tall to be able to close the door. So, right. yeah, they are smaller. I'm going to pull up a screenshot of what these look like. This is the one that's actually coming up for sale at the RM Sotheby sale. And, it is a beautiful car. And I think one thing that maybe surprises a lot of folks, but 
maybe not. It's actually a lot smaller in person than one would think. At least I would think. Yeah. I mean, I look at these cars and I see it, you know, on the screen and it I get a certain, you know, size in my mind, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, size of a 911, maybe a little longer, you know, and stuff. Not obviously not as tall. Yeah. But then you see one in person, you're like, wow, that thing's small. <laughs> yeah. They are small. Uh, the driving position is very flat. It's like lying in bed reading a book, basically, when you're sitting right. in the car. It's more like you're lying in it with the steering wheel being sort of like a book that you'd be reading if you were lying in bed. Right. Uh, that's kind of how I liken it. Um, and yeah, the cars are small. If you ever see, there's a famous picture of one of the cars um, taken at Spa in 71 where the car is parked next to a 914. And in most dimensions, it's smaller than a 914. So, right, right, yeah, for sure. I mean, the picture I'm showing right now shows there is a passenger seat. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm assuming that's because of the rules and regulations at the time. Is that right? Yeah, the 917 first was built under Group Four, which became Group Five rules. So it it is basically a sports car. It's not a prototype per se uh, under the rules. So the the Group Five rules, Group Four, Group Four slash Five rules. Um, said that the car had to have two seats. It had to have a spare tire. It has it had to have luggage space. You see those oh. luggage trays. You have that one picture with the tail up that shows the luggage trays. Has to have signal lights. So it has to have some road car equipment. Um, uh, basically, on the rules. Yeah, there's the uh, there are the luggage trays in back. Wow. Um, so it's it uh, it had to have some road equipment. Had to have a roof. Couldn't be an open car. So. Um, that's something unique about the 917, similar to the Ford GT40, which also ran under the same basic rules of, of having to have some road legal equipment, even though the cars weren't really road legal. That's why you have that passenger seat in there. Okay. And I'm assuming that your luggage would probably get pretty hot back there. <laughs> also, you don't ever put luggage back there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody's ever tried to put luggage uh, back there. And to my knowledge, the spare the spare tire was never actually used. Um, it was just, again, there to comply with the rules. It was a space saver. Very early uh, use of the concept of a space saver spare. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. And one thing I'd like to know, obviously, you could kind of go into the history of probably you know, most of these race cars, if you could encapsulate kind of the legacy of the 917s or a couple comments on their racing history and where they're, uh, you know, where, where they are in automotive history, how would you kind of preface that to someone who maybe has never been familiar with these cars, cars before, even heard of them before? Well, it's, it's, they're, they're sort of a pinnacle. They're, they sit at the pinnacle of uh, an era of sports car racing, which was building up all during the 60s. Uh, I think many people have seen Ford versus Ferrari movie right. um, with the, the Ford versus the GT40 and that that era. Um, Porsche came along and uh, in about the mid 60s with Ferdinand Pieck in charge of R&D, decided they wanted to compete for overall victories uh, in the World Sports Car Championship and at Le Mans. Right. And so the 917 really is the car that uh, Porsche built to win Le Mans, and they were successful at that, uh, winning it uh, for the first time in 1970 and then again in 1971. And so being that it's Porsche's first car to win Le Mans, that's very significant. The fact that it was so prominent in the Steve McQueen film is another really um, important piece uh, of the the value and the attractiveness of these cars because so many people 
that that movie introduced so many people to motor racing in general and sports car racing specifically. So um, the 917 really sits up there, uh, not quite in Ferrari GTO territory because um, the 917 can't really be used on the street like a GTO. Um, but it's, it's, it's similar in terms of, uh, it's relatively rare and it's kind of seen as a peak of its, uh, of its type. For those that are watching on YouTube, I'll see if I can move my camera here. I actually have the 1970 world championship poster back left there. And it has one of the Gulf oil cars on the cover of that or on that poster. Yeah. There were only two that were ever sort of street legal. One was, uh, one was Count Rossi's car, that's chassis number 30, which is the only one that Porsche um, built with the intention of having it be um, uh, run on the street. Actually, it was converted from a racing car to a quasi-street car right. for Count Rossi. Uh, that's the silver car that uh, has been seen uh, occasionally over the years. Um, there was another one that was independently built for the street and then there's a couple there there's there's one uh, chassis 37 also that has been used on the street by its current owner uh who lives in monaco i believe uh, but they're not really meant for the street they really are a pure racing car but was built to, to a certain set of rules and how many did they make in all the different versions of the 917 well if we if we include the can-am cars we can get up to around 65 or so 917s built by Porsche it depends on how you count right. because we have issues with with chassis renumbering we have cars that are controversial about uh, as far as whether or not you should count them in this in the 60 or 65 number um, but my count generally fluctuates around the mid 60s in terms of actual Porsche chassis built by Porsche. And that includes the uh, what we call the FIA cars, which are the sports endurance racers and the Can-Am cars, uh, which include the Interserie, which was the European version of the Can-Am. And those are open top spiders, which were built for sprint racing. Um, the auction car is interesting because... Um, it was pretty early in its life. It was converted to an inter-series spider mm -hmm. uh, and actually did race in the inter-series and did a number of other um, local events in, uh, in Europe uh, after it was converted to a spider configuration. Now, how, of the 60 to 65, any idea how many are known to still exist? It's another really tough question because... Um, we have the issue of cars that are that are claiming certain chassis numbers, but but those of us who are enthusiasts and historians, we don't have all the documentation for all the cars, so we don't really know on some of these cars. We don't really know how strong the claim is to originality with some of right. them. Right. But I think uh, I think we're in somewhere in the fifth in the low fifties mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, real nine seventeens that still exist. But that number fluctuates depending on what what information crops up. It's amazing how new information continues to crop up even after 50 years. We're still learning new information about some of these cars. Right. And before we go much further, I do want to mention that your book is available. Can you tell our listeners the best way to find your book? Uh, the best way is from the publisher directly at uh, daltonwatson.com. It's Dalton Watson Fine Books is the uh, publisher, and we do have uh, copies remaining. So um, <laughs> the thing about the book is e each um, each of the cars that were used by the JW Automotive Engineering Golf team has its own chapter. 
Mm. So it's it's a chassis by chassis, race by race history of the cars that were used by the golf team, uh, including the auction car, which happens to be chapter number 11 in my book. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that's really great. And just as a reminder to our listeners, this car is coming up for sale at RM Sotheby's huge Monterey sale. Uh, so you can go to com to check it out. You cannot miss it. So yeah, let's talk about this car, Chassis 26, correct? Well, it's Chassis 26. It was renumbered uh, 031. Uh, it started as the third team car uh, for golf and at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1970, driven by David Hobbs and Mike Halewood. Uh, ran with a four and a half liter engine. Uh, the other two team cars had the 4.9 liter engine. So this third car was kind of the, maybe the tortoise to the hares, um, running, you know, conservative engine setup uh, with the four and a half liter. And um, it was, but still running pretty high, got up as, as high as third place before heavy rain came. And the heavy rain came right after Halewood's fuel stop. And when he came around on the next lap, um, he wasn't sure if he should pull into the pits or not. He wasn't sure if the, they were ready for him. So he continued. And then he spun off the track at the Dunlop curve and, and collided with a parked Alpha 33. Right. And so there's a famous picture of the car being hoisted off the track by its nose. We use that. A famous picture in my book uh, with a crane pulling or, or literally hoisting the car by its nose off the track at the Dunlop curve. So it was pretty, it was pretty badly damaged in the front. Um, so after the Le Mans race, it was sent back to Porsche. And uh, so the golf team needed a replacement car. Porsche would have sent chassis number 31 uh, to uh, the golf team, but the golf team had a preference to keep the chat to, to, to stay on a, a, um, a common set of chassis numbers. Uh, so 31 became 26, replacing this car. This, this car was renumbered 31. And then eventually when Porsche got around uh, to repairing this car, they decided to convert it to an inter-series Spider, uh, as we said earlier. So it was converted to an open top uh, sprint racer uh, for the Heckersbrook team, um, which used it. Uh, Jürgen Niehaus was the driver all through 1971 into 72, and uh, he even used it in, a, in four hill climbs. If you can imagine driving a 917 in a hill climb, right? Uh, he, he won four hill climbs, uh, did pretty well in some local races, and he also raced it in the Interserie, which is the uh, uh, the European version of the Can-Am. Wow. And then the car the car went to the Loose team, Jello Racing, and was also raced in. Uh, 73, uh, 72 and 73 by the loose team, including was driven, uh, raced four times by Jurgen Barth, who's a familiar name to Porsche folks um, who worked for the factory and whose father was a great Porsche racer. So um, he drove it in the last four races for the loose team um, before the car ultimately was retired. Okay. Yep. And then after retirement, I know I don't want to go any true specifics but did it just kind of go into a collection at that time with it in yeah, my yeah. Years? yeah went went first went to the Shandong collection which I'll admit I don't know a whole lot about in my research haven't been able to really find out all that much about the Shandong collection but that's that was its first stop for many years 
Uh, and then in 1988, it was acquired by Mike Amalfitano, who was a very enthusiastic uh, American vintage racer. And he vintage raced the car for uh, nearly 20 years. Um, and I, I saw it at a couple of uh, Rensport reunion events. And uh, it was still in, it was still a spider at that point. And uh, he wanted to keep it that way so that he could continue vintage racing it, even though there was, there was a gravitational pull, you would say, to restore it to its golf coupe um, uh, configuration, because, you know, obviously that's where the value is at this right. point. Yeah. Uh, all the cars that were converted, there were four, there were four coupes that were converted to spiders. All four have been converted back to coupes. And three of those were golf team cars. So, well, and to your point, you know, when people look at restoring old race cars, they pretty much want to take it back to when it was pretty much most successful, I would imagine, uh, you know, period, correct? Because, like you said, if it raced for five years, there's probably three different configurations you can pick. Uh, and, and the only thing I would ever say is that, well, if it's still in the original condition, don't touch it. But, you know, if it's been rebodied numerous times, you know, take it back to where it was most well known. And obviously, Gulf Oil Le Mans, that's the, the pinnacle right there as far as race cars go, correct? Yeah. As I said, all, all three of the Gulf cars that were converted to Spiders have been converted back to coupes because the blue and the orange has just such an appeal to it. Um, and that's that's where we are. Um, after the car was, um, uh, Mr. Amalfitano passed away uh, unexpectedly. And so the car was sold uh, at the Bonhams auction in Monterey in 2010. And that was kind of the last we heard about it for a number of years. Um, didn't really know exactly where it was or what was happening to it. But now we know that it was in the process of being restored uh, back to uh, a coupe. And here we are, we can see in these beautiful photos, uh, the result of that restoration and uh, how the car looks today. Now, do you remember the price that it sold for back in 2010? Uh, 2010, I think it was, uh, I've got it here, 3 million, uh, see, 3 million 967. Uh, and then there was a, a set of spare body panels that was um, sold at the same auction as a separate lot for 182,000, so. Um, obviously they've gone up in price a lot since then. I believe it's the, the one that the golf car that's at the Brumos collection famously sold for, what was it? $14 million? Three or yeah. 14 or a little, little more than 14 million. That was in 2017. Uh, and that car is, is got some, got some similarities to this one. Um, mainly just being fully restored, fully restored cars that have a good claim to wearing the golf colors. So Right. And um, if my listeners haven't listened to it, you can go back and listen to the Dan Davis interview where he mm -hmm. talked about surprising his crew with that car one day. They didn't even know it was going to show up until it showed up, which is pretty cool. Well, and that was another example of after the auction, you know, everyone was wondering who bought the car and where did it end up and all that. And we had to wait for, gee, almost three years, I guess, before all of a sudden there it was in the Brumos Museum. And we were like, oh, wow, there it is, you know, right. so. Yeah, and you can actually go to my Instagram feed to see that car because I was at Brumos over a New Island weekend. And then also to go far enough back, I need to repost these. <laughs> you can see, I believe it's called the hippie car, the one in the Simeon Museum, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Are there any others that are in are on public display in, in a, a few museums? I would assume there's 
at least a handful of them. Well, certainly the certainly the Porsche Museum, um, you know, Porsche has a good collection of about 10 of these cars. Uh, and then the Le Mans Museum in France, the car that they have, which was recently repainted back to golf colors, um, as it should be. Uh, for, for many, many years, it was painted in martini colors, which was incorrect for that particular chassis. And so they've taken it back to the, uh, the it's the only other car that has an orange roof like this one. Okay. And um, so um, trying to think other, well, the Revs Institute, of course, Collier Collection, they have two 917s. Um, those are the ones that come to mind that are publicly, uh, along with Simeon, collection, of course. Um, those are the ones uh, that come to mind where people can go and see these cars publicly. Sure. Okay. Well, I appreciate you reviewing this. So we basically covered some of your passion for cars, the 917 and this chassis number 26 slash 31. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about as it revolves around 917s for this, uh, this call? Uh, well, just a little bit, um, I guess we, we should mention that uh, we have the 917 class coming up at Pebble Beach. And so I've, I've been helping the Pebble Beach team a little bit behind the scenes in preparation for that. Um, should be, I mean, Pebble Beach this year is going to be spectacular. When you look at all the special classes that they've put together this year, it's, it's really amazing. Um, I don't know how they can top it, although I'm sure they will. Um, but having the 917s at Pebble Beach is something we were hoping to do last year of course, for the 50th anniversary of Porsche's first win at Le Mans. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we've had to carry that over um, this year. So we'll have a good group of um, 917s uh, on the fairway uh, at Pebble Beach. I hope people will really enjoy seeing the collection of cars there. And then uh, the auction is, is, again, a big event because these cars very rarely sell publicly. So it's it's very unusual to to get an idea what they're worth because most most often they sell privately and we just don't know uh, what they're changing hands for. So on these rare occasions when uh, a car does sell publicly, you know, it's really nice to uh, for those of us who will never have enough money to afford them to at least know how much money we would need. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I don't think I've said it before. You know, the one sold what 2010 for a little bit over three million dollars or this particular one. And it's the estimate on this car is 16.5 to $18 million, which mm -hmm. really shows you the increase in interest and value to these cars. And like we said, one similar to it, that's now at the Brumos Museum sold for $14 million a couple of years ago. Yeah. So we will see. And I actually have a picture, a period picture showing right now online. And yep. it's iconic. You can see a couple of the 911Rs in the background. And we actually have a 911R, a 67 911R at the mm. same sale. So when you get the, 9, the 917 out, some of the other iconic Porsches will make their way out to the same auction. So I believe the estimate on the 911R was about 3.5 to $4 million. So, and also just last week I had on Ken Gross and he mentioned he was bringing together a group of Miller race cars. So you've got mm -hmm. the iconic 917s and you got iconic Miller race cars all at the same Pebble Beach Concourse Elegance. Yes, well, well, Ken may not have had a chance to mention it, but he's sort of been leading the the little subcommittee that we had working on the 917 class. Okay. So Ken, uh, I've been working with Ken on um, actually now for she's seems like almost three years we've been working on this project to try to 
uh, see if we could bring together the best possible <clears throat> best possible group uh, of 917s. And uh, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but it's kind of cool that this other car is going to be auctioned uh, at the same weekend. And um, so all three of the, the Le Mans team cars from 1970 back in golf colors, um, that's kind of an interesting thing. And the connection to the film Le Mans is also part of this car's history since you do see it in the uh, actual race footage that was used in the Le Mans movie. So again, like the Brumos car, it has a connection to the movie. And, um, you know, that also adds to the value. Yeah. And it's interesting. The Steve McQueen effect will be interesting to see on this car because it's such a high dollar car. When you look at the 68, you know, bullet Mustang that sold that car is really rough shape was probably worth about 35, 40 grand as is, but it sold mm -hmm. for $4 million. Obviously yeah. you won't see that type of multiplier on this car because it's such a high price, but it will add a few million. I bet. Um, I also have to have a period picture up here right now where you can see one of the 911s and it really shows you how tiny these cars were. Yeah. 11 looked yeah. pretty big. <laughs> nine, the nine, uh, 917 is barely 36 inches high at the top of its roof. So, yeah. um, oh, there you go. There's a picture yeah. of the chassis number. Chassis number. Yep. Yeah. So I'm, I'm scrolling through these pictures. I was hoping to get back to the the money shot picture, but boy, they got a lot of pictures on the site here. So if you aren't joining us via video and you want to see these pictures, just check them out at rmsothebees.com. Well, Jay, thank you so much. Oh, wait, before you go, I do have to run you through the ringer for my uh, keep cash and crush game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I gave you a heads up on this. So I will give you three cars and you have to tell me which one you want to keep forever, which one you're going to cash in, and then which one, unfortunately, you're going to set to the crusher. Now, I did not pick any 917s. <laughs> Good. But I did pick three Porsches. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll give it a shot. <laughs> All right. So the first one is a 1964 Porsche 901. It's a rare car. Mm -hmm. The second one is a 2006 Porsche Carrera GT. Oh. Yeah. Those okay. are negotiating in the marketplace. And then the third is a 2008 Porsche 911 GT2 RS. So those are your three cars. A 1964 Porsche 908, 901, a 2006 Porsche Carrera GT, and then a 08 Porsche GT2 RS. So which one will you keep forever? Which one will you cash in? And which one will you crush and why? Oh, wow. That's, that's a tough one. Um, I would, I kind of like to have cars that I can drive. And then okay. 901 is, is a car that would be so valuable and rare that I might be afraid to drive it and I don't have a private museum to keep it in. So I might be tempted to, I might be tempted to sell the 901. Um, okay. And then um, the, the GT, GT, did you say GT3 RS? Two. Oh, GT2 RS. That's one I probably would be tempted to keep um because i think it'd be fun to drive okay uh and unfortunately that would mean crushing the carrera <laughs> I, I'm just, yeah i mean first of all porsche built a fair number of carreras so if we crush one several of them have been crashed as you know right, right. um and so if we crush another one it's it's not necessarily a great loss and i'm just even though it's a motorsport based car i just was never quite warmed up to that particular car, even though I'm a huge Porsche fan, 
um, and a card-carrying Porsche Club member. For some reason, I just never quite warmed up to the Carrera GT. So that's I guess fair. I'd have to send that one to the Crusher. Okay. Well, that's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, once again, what's the best way for our listeners to buy your book? Uh, the best way is to go to www.daltonwatson.com. It's Dalton Watson Fine Books. And uh, the book is, um, it's as I said, it's chassis by chassis, race by race history of the approximately 14 different chassis that uh, the John Wire golf team uh, was loaned by Porsche and uh, raced in 1970 and 71. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.